Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Standing Strong in Trying Times, a study of the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel gives stories of faithful believers standing strong in trying times of exile and visions of the ultimate victory of God's kingdom over the kingdoms of this world. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's word in your life today. And we're going to be looking today at Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. I was originally going to try and cover the whole chapter, but uh, being as you wanted to get home before dinner time tonight, I decided it would be better to split that into half as I was trying to wrestle through it uh, this week. So we're going to break it into two parts as we are looking at the beasts and the Son of Man. Today is going to be part one. So we're going to look at the first 14 verses And then next week, we'll come back and look at verses 15 to 28. Some of it kind of is covered both weeks. And we'll try to work our way through that a little bit. But we're going to look at Daniel 7, 1 to 14. This is a good time to remind you, we do provide the text in the booklets. And we have it up on the screen, but I always encourage you, bring your Bible. And I remind you, if you have a mobile phone, you actually have a Bible that you can also use to text and make phone calls with. Or it ought to be that way. Have a Bible on your mobile device, or you can have a a paper one and open it up and uh, read along with me. So this is Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to 14, and I'm going to be reading out of the New International Version. I want you now to hear the word of the Ancient of Days, who rules and reigns over all. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. And four great beasts, each different from the others, came out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back it had four wings, like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. And after that in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured his victims, and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, and there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes uh, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. 
His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. May God bless his holy word. There's a popular saying that we've all heard, which is the more things change, the more they stay the same. And that is very true of Daniel's chapter 7 and following, chapter 7 to 12. And the reason I say this is everything seems to have changed when you open up and you read this passage. I mean, when you've been reading Daniel chapter 1 to 6, it reads like a history book. It's just telling narrative stories of things that happened to individual people uh, in the past. Now, all of a sudden, we have these wild apocalyptic visions, right? I mean, everybody here doesn't really need me to explain Daniel chapter 7 because it's crystal clear, right? <laughs> I mean, everyday things that we see. We've moved mainly in Daniel chapter 1 to 6. They're telling the stories of what happened to Daniel and his friends in the present. Now we are actually moving, we're going to see, to the future. So everything seems to have changed, but it really hasn't. Everything is actually the same because the message of Daniel chapter 7 to 12 is the same as the message of Daniel chapter 1 through 6. And that message is our God reigns. Whatever else you see that is happening, you may be uh, about to be killed because the king's had a strange dream and he won't tell anybody, but our God reigns. You may be thrown into the fire, but I want you to know our God reigns. It may seem that other kingdoms are rising and falling, our God reigns. You may be in the fire, our God reigns. And he not only reigns in the past, he reigns in the present, and he reigns into the future. That is the message we're going to see. Now, in many ways, chapter 7 is actually a very key hinge in the entire book. And the reason I say this is it occupies a very important place. First off, the genre is changing with this chapter. Everything was historical narrative. From this point forward, everything is going to be known what is apocalyptic literature. So it's very key. You have to read chapter 7 to 12 differently than you did chapters 1 to 6. Some evangelicals want to try and read them the same. That makes no sense. You cannot read them the same way. They're very different genres of literature. They're telling you the same thing, basically, but they're doing it in very different ways. 
Secondly, I mentioned earlier that this part of the book of Daniel has a huge chiasm in it. A chiasm is a way that they like to work in, uh, in Semitic literature, where you would go A, B, C, C, B, A. You would back it out. Well, that's exactly what's gone on in uh, the book of Daniel. In chapter 2, we had Nebuchadnezzar's vision of four kingdoms and then God's kingdom that were put together. Well, here in chapter 7, Daniel is given a vision of four kingdoms and God's kingdom. It's the same message as chapter 2. And in fact, we're going to see you have to read chapter 7 and 2 together. They're not telling different messages. They're telling the same message. Well, if you step in one, you remember chapter 3, we have the faithful believers who are thrown into the fire. In chapter 6, corresponding to that, we have Daniel who's thrown into the lion's den, the faithful believer. Both chapters are persecution. And in the very middle, you have Nebuchadnezzar, who's the first king of Babylon during the exile of the Jews, who is humbled. And then in chapter 5, you have Belshazzar, who is the last king of Babylon during the time of the Jews, actually the last king of Babylon, period. And he is humbled. So notice it's A, B, C, C, B, A. There's a giant chiasm going here. And that's not just of, wow, I've never seen that before. It's important. You must read chapter 7 with chapter 2. Many evangelicals try to pull these apart, and we cannot do that. Now, chapter 7 is also important because its message is going to be expanded in the rest of the book. Chapter 8 is going to tell us about the second and the third beast. It's going to lay them out. We're going to read about those kingdoms uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, chapter 9 talks about the end of the exile, but it also talks about, in essence, the, the same story we're seeing here, the Son of Man setting up the kingdom of God and how this is done during the days of the fourth kingdom. And chapters 10 to 12 are going to extend out the third and the fourth uh, kingdoms. That are, that are laid out. So we're going to see this over and over. And then one last reason that chapter 7 is important, and this isn't going to be apparent in your English versions, but if you remember, I told you all the way back in Daniel chapter 2, suddenly it says the people spoke to Nebuchadnezzar in Aramaic, and the book shifts from Hebrew to Aramaic. And it stays Aramaic all the way to chapter 7, verse 28, because chapter 2 and 7 again go together. And then it's going to shift back to Hebrew. Not something you would notice in your English translation, but it is apparent to a reader of Hebrew or Aramaic. So all of these reasons tell us this is an important chapter. There's a lot going on here, and it looks very confusing at first, but it's worth our time. Before I dive in, let me give one quick word about interpreting apocalyptic writings. And I'm going to expand this even more in after hours. I'm just going to be very brief here, but if you Look at the video on Tuesday if you go to the church website um, or look on our YouTube channel, whatever, you can look at After Hours and I'll describe a little bit more about how to do apocalyptic. But let me say this, this is the, the central things to note. You cannot interpret apocalyptic literally. It's screaming, don't do that. It's full of symbols and metaphors. And by their very nature, symbols and metaphors are not literal. Our God is a rock, but not literally a rock. Our God covers you with his wings and feathers. He doesn't literally have wings and feathers, okay? 
You cannot read apocalyptic literally. And you can't read it literally unless you can't come up with some crazy thing. It's symbolic. That's the, the nature of, uh, of apocalyptic. So because of that, we don't try and press every minor detail. You get yourself in a ditch if you do this, and you get yourself in a ditch very quickly. And the last thing that I'm going to mention before we turn in is, like everything else in Scripture, when I'm reading apocalyptic, who should I be looking for? Jesus. If you are not looking for Jesus, if you're trying to figure out who's going to rise up in the Middle East, you're off the path. Okay? Not because I say so. What did Jesus tell us all the Bible's about? Jesus. If you're looking for something else, you're looking for the wrong thing. It's about him. And we're going to see that in this very text today. So let's uh, dive in and we're going to look at this terrifying vision of four beasts. Now Daniel tells us, beginning in verse 1, that this vision happens in the first year of Belshazzar. So we're back between Daniel chapter 4 and chapter 5. It's probably around 553 B.C. or so is what we've moved to, 553 B.C. But it's long before chapter 6 of Daniel. And notice he begins by saying, I had this vision, there were the four winds of heaven. Now again, four winds is not literal. The wind blows from many more directions than four. But this was a symbolic way of saying all the winds of heaven. Okay, there's four corners to the earth, not because the Bible believed the earth was flat. They already knew long before the time of Jesus that the earth was round, not flat. But they're saying four is the way of saying this is creation. All creation is involved. And notice, they are churning up the great sea. In the Bible and in the ancient Near East, the great sea is a picture of chaos. Chaos is that which is disorderly, which is arrayed against God. Will God overcome or will chaos overcome? You can see this if you read in the early chapters of Genesis, if you read in the book of Job, you can read in the Psalms, it talks about the sea being chaotic and fighting against God. But it's very common actually in all the ancient Near Eastern myths. The Babylon creation myth, the Enuma Elish, talks about the god Tiamat, and there's this chaos, and all this is going on, and actually another god conquers Tiamat and creates the universe out of the dead body of their god, okay? But chaos is involved. Uh, in the Canaanite myths, Baal is involved in all of that, that there are these, uh, there's this fight between the god and chaos, the high god and chaos, and who will win. And so we see, as soon as Daniel says this, don't think the way we was, what would it mean if you were an ancient Israelite? When you hear the sea is in turmoil, you're like, oh boy, this is not good, okay? It's kind of like us, you know, it was a dark and stormy night. Your thing is not that the next thing's going to be really cheery and happy, right? Something bad's about to happen, okay? That's exactly what's going on here. And then notice that the beasts we're going to look at, where do they come from? out of the sea. They're forces of chaos. They are forces that are arrayed against God. That's what they are. So right from the get-go, before we even got into who they are or what they're doing, we already know that there is trouble. 
Now, Daniel then goes on in verses 4 to 7, and he describes these four horrid beasts. And one of the ways you can kind of tell there are chaos, you remember in the beginning, we have the sea, and the Spirit of God is over the sea, and then God starts speeding, and he starts separating. And all the animals come forth, and the animals are each are created according to their kind. Well, notice these beasts. They're not according to their kinds. We have a lion, but what does the lion have? He's got eagle's wings. And the eagle's wings are going to get torn off. And he's got the heart and mind of a man. This is a whole mixed thing. And you've got to understand to the Jews, they're like, oh boy, this is like we're trying to undo Genesis chapter 1. We're trying to go back into the chaos. The second beast comes out. It's a bear that's higher on one side. And it's got ribs in its mouth. And it's told to rise up and devour. It's a terrifying picture of a bear, you know, about to attack. Thirdly, we get this leopard, but he's a leopard, and once again, he's got wings, and he's got four of them, and he's got four heads. You can go out and look in some uncharted remote jungle. You're not going to find a leopard with four heads. This, again, isn't literal. There's a symbol that's going on here, and this leopard is given authority to rule. He's coming out of the chaos. He's, he's like undoing the order that God has made. He's this hybrid beast, but he's got authority as ruling. And if all that's not bad enough, Daniel says the fourth beast, I can't even tell you what it's like because it's unlike anything I've ever seen or heard of. This fourth beast is terrifying, as if a leopard with four heads wasn't terrifying enough, right? This one is terrifying. He's powerful. He's got iron teeth, and he's got ten horns on his head. I mean, one or two horns is bad enough, right? This thing's got ten horns on his head, and we're told he is trampling, he is crushing, he is devouring everything. Now, you got to believe, if you are Daniel, you're awake at this point. This is a terrifying vision that Daniel has. Now, the important thing to see is, and later on we'll see them described, but these beasts are the same thing as the four parts of the statue in Jan Daniel chapter 2. They're the same four kingdoms. Now, we know this because, remember, the chiasm. Daniel 2 and 7 are together, just like 6 and 3, just like 4 and 5. They're talking about the same thing. But secondly, we also know because the angel helpfully tells us these are kingdoms. He tells us the four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. There's going to be these four kingdoms that are coming up that I'm going to be describing to you. That's who these are. They're not literal beasts. They represent kingdoms. Now, going back to chapter 2, I identified earlier, you can tell who these are. They are, the first beast is actually Nebuchadnezzar. We know in chapter 2 that we're specifically told, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. He's also the lion with wings, which Babylon liked to use as a representation of their empire. But also notice, can you think of anybody who was crushed down and then suddenly given the heart and mind of a man back to him? It's Nebuchadnezzar. You remember Nebuchadnezzar act like an animal and then was restored. You have this lion who seems to have his wings ripped off. He's crushed down, but then all of a sudden he's given his mind back. This is back to Nebuchadnezzar. So this first kingdom is 
Babylon. The second kingdom, the bear, is actually Persia. Now you've got to remember, what's interesting is, the first year of King Belshazzar is about the time that the Medo-Persian Empire starts to march across the ancient Near East, and it's going to end with the destruction of Babylon about 13, 14 years later. Okay, so notice it's told to arise and devour. In essence, God is telling the second empire, your time is coming now. I want you to rise up and devour. The third empire, which is a leopard, and leopards are very swift on their own, but this one's got four wings on top of it, is the Greeks coming in. One of the things we know is, we're going to go into this more next week, we're going to see another beast that's got one horn, and then there's going to be four horns, and that's because Alexander the Great is the one who did the conquering, but as we're going to find, at the very height of his power, Alexander dies, and he's replaced by, anybody want to guess how many generals? Four. There's going to be four generals that come out, and they rule basically the entire known world to that time. It's the largest empire by far anybody has seen, and it is swift. I mean, we still studied Alexander the Great when I did military history at the academy because his battles are classic and because he just crushed the Persian Empire. I mean, nobody had seen an empire fall that fast. When Alexander rose, everything came before him. But then the fourth scariest beast is Rome. Remember, just like chapter 2, in chapter 2, Rome was represented by iron, and here the beast has iron teeth because there's a link back to chapter 2 and it tramples everything before it because you thought Alexander's kingdom was big well they take over all four kingdoms that arise from Alexander but they go way to the west as well and also even further down in Africa the largest empire that was known at that time and it trampled everything before it and we're going to see it's the most important of the four kingdoms not because Rome's more important than Greece or Persia or Babylon, but because Christ comes and sets up the kingdom of God during the days, not of a future Rome, ancient Rome. He sets up the kingdom in the time of Rome. So we have these coming beastly kingdoms, and again, it's the same message as Daniel chapter 2. But we might ask, why then have another vision? And why instead of the statue of metals, why are they these beasts arising out of chaos? Because when you look in Daniel 2 and you see the statue and there are all these fine metals, that's telling us the glorious things about these kingdoms. Okay? Because human authority has a good side to it. Chaos is bad. Order is good. Therefore, we do not want a kingdom where everybody does what's right in their own eyes. But, make no mistake, fallen kingdoms always are forces on the side of chaos against God. They are always arrayed against God and his kingdom, and they sooner or later will turn against the people of God. How many of them will do that? All of them. It doesn't matter what they say. doesn't matter how they do it. Remember, they are terrifying beasts. All of 
them, including the one that I desperately love and served and everything else, they are all beastly because they're not in it for God and his kingdom. Who are they in it for? Themselves. That's what they're after. So Daniel chapter 7 is kind of telling us the same thing, but as it were, it's letting us see the flip side of the coin. And it's saying, yes, there is good, there's precious metal, but I want you to understand there is also their beasts and their chaotic beasts. And they don't want the way God has made things. They want to break down what God has ordered and restructure it and make it in their own image. Kind of like every one of you and me. Kingdoms are just we sinners conglomerated together and God has enough problem with me when I get together with you and we start mixing our sin, we can really get some critical mass going here. And Daniel's letting us know this is the nature. And as we'll see next week, we'll drive back as we look at the end chapter, we're going to see it's not just theoretical they're against God. They very often persecute the people of God. That is our lot throughout this age. Now, Interestingly enough, and there's some stuff about a little fourth horn, that's so obvious I'll let you work that out. But we're going to jump to the Ancient of Days. Actually, we'll come back to the little horn next week. I won't leave you on your own. But he's really going to be the part of it for next week. But I want you to see, all of a sudden, Daniel's having this crazy vision of all of these beasts, and they're terrifying. And then all of a sudden, and there's this little fourth horn's going to be talking, we'll see. But all of a sudden, he says... As I looked, and actually the style of literature changes. That's why the NIV puts it in quotes. Thrones were set in place. Because it kind of becomes a poetic description. Because everything has changed. Instead of seeing the, uh, the earthly kingdoms, all of a sudden we're up and we're seeing God. Instead of seeing that which represents human, humanity in our kingdoms, we are seeing God and his kingdom. Instead of the force of chaos, we are seeing the eternal God on his throne. And notice, I mean, this is meant to be a, a mind-blowing picture and description of who God is. I see him, and notice he is the ancient of days and he takes his seat his clothing is white as snow the hair of his head was white like wool if you read revelation 1 you'll see jesus described in the same way and a throne was flaming with fire and its wheels are ablaze it's like he's on a chariot which was very common in the ancient near east the thrones were oftentimes set that way and the wheels are ablaze and a river of fire is flowing coming out before him and thousands upon thousands attend him 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him the court is seated and the books are opened this is more than the bail of saying everyone rise the judge is coming in. This is one that you don't need to be told. In fact, you're not rising. You're on your face. We've seen beastly kingdoms and they look scary, but now Daniel's head is turned and he is seeing the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days says, you know what? The fourth beast is going to come. And the fourth beast is going to seem like he has a reign that will never end. And he is going to trample. And he is going to devour. And he's going to proclaim himself to be all of this. And then I'm going to sit on my throne and I'm going to open the books. And when I do, I'm going to make judgment. And my judgment will stand. 
This is an amazing description of who God is. And it is not chaos. It is the eternal God with 10,000 times 10,000 before him. And they are all in worship. And he is saying during the time of the fourth kingdom, Daniel's watching this fourth beast do his thing. And in just a second, the, the little horn starts spouting off his words of blasphemy and all that. But right in the midst of it, God takes his throne and he opens the books and he says, you've had your time, you've done your four kingdoms, I'm setting up my kingdom. That's the message that is going on here. But then as if that's not amazing enough, in verses 13 and 14, we get an additional description. And this becomes critical one of the things I've learned the most in my study of Daniel is how important these two verses are. Notice in Daniel 7, 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. If you're a believer, this phrase has got to be going off in your head right now. One like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. So this is critical because you got to remember with ancient Near Eastern kings, we learned this in the book of Esther, what happens if you just storm into the presence of the king? You're like, no. But this one can come into the presence of the Ancient of Days. But notice what we're told here. First off, the phrase is one like a son of man. Now, what this tells us is firstly, this individual that Daniel is seeing is human. The phrase son of man in both Hebrew and Aramaic literally means human. That's what it meant. It's one who was a son of a human being. He is a human being. But more than that, and this is very interesting, Simeon did not know what I'm about to quote, but of all the things he picked to do today, so thank you, Simeon, he quoted Psalm 8. <laughs> Notice Psalm 8, 4-7. The psalmist is considering the vast heavens, just like Daniel's been looking at the beasts. And the psalmist says, when I consider the heavens, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field. So notice in Psalm 8, we have the Son of Man who seems like he might be inconsequential, but he actually has authority over the beasts. Because this, of course, goes back, Psalm 8 is a reflection on Genesis chapter 1, and what were we told to do? Take dominion. And specifically, we're told to take dominion over all the beasts that God has made. See, this vision is the beast trying to exert their authority over the sons of men. Here we have in Psalm 8 saying, no, but the time is going to come. God has decreed that humanity is going to rule. But here's the problem. When I read Psalm 8, how have we fulfilled the call of God? We have not. We have blown this since Genesis 3. How are we going to fulfill our call? There has to be one who is truly human, who will come and do what we were called to do, who will actually rule and reign. 
And I would encourage you, if you wonder if I'm making this up, if you read Hebrews 2, 5 to 9, I won't take the time, the writer to Hebrews quotes Psalm 8 and says, this doesn't seem to be happening, but we see Jesus, who was made like us, and now is ruling and reigning over all things, putting them under his feet. So this is Psalm 8, and it's about the Son of Man, but clearly in Daniel's vision, this individual is more than just human. How do we know that? There's two phrases that let us know that. First, notice in verse 13, it says, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, this is where we have to go back and hear it the way they did, okay? This doesn't mean that clouds are firm and you can ride on top of a cloud. Riding the clouds is the phrase for God. God alone rides the clouds. And this was true throughout the ancient Near East. Baal, the God that Israel struggled with, was called the cloud rider. He rode upon the clouds. Therefore, he could dispense rain. So just as you're reading your Bibles, this is why Elijah said it'll be drought for three and a half years unless I tell you you're trusting in Baal, let Baal bring the rain. He's the cloud rider. Let him do what he says he can do. But until Yahweh says so, it ain't going to happen. Okay? One who rides the clouds is always divine. Notice in just a couple of places in the scripture. In Psalm 68, verse 4, we're told, sing to God, sing praise to his name, extol him who does what? Rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord. His name is Yahweh. So you rejoice before him. Yahweh alone rides the clouds. Psalm 104, verse 3, he makes the clouds his chariot, and he rides on the wings of the wind. Even more to the point, Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1, see the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him, and the hearts of the Egyptians melt before him. Because when he rides the clouds, he rides to judge. And so, the Son of Man here is being, we're being told, He is none other than God. And this means when Jesus is riding the clouds, He is establishing the judgment of God upon the kingdoms of men. And notice verse 14 points this out uh, as well. We're told in verse 14, he, the Son of Man, was given authority and glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language do what? Is anybody allowed to be worshipped other than God? You remember when John is given a revelation that you ought to be hearing phrases of because John is constantly interacting with Daniel, and he sees the angel, what does John do? says, you know, not, not like people who write books today and say, hey, the angel and I had coffee together. John wets his robes, hits the ground, and starts worshiping. And what does the angel say? D don't do that. I'm just a fellow servant like you are. Get up. Worship God alone. But here, one like a son of man is worshiped by people from every tribe and nation and language. Does that remind you of anybody? 
You got it. This is Jesus. This is what Revelation 5 and 7 are about. And it says, His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so we're being told this person is not only human, He is also God. And He is ruling and He is reigning. And notice the contrast with the beast. Unlike the beast, and their kings, the Son of Man will rule forever and ever. The kingdom he establishes is an eternal kingdom. And the kingdom he establishes are not beasts arising out of the sea of chaos. It is a kingdom that is established by the triune God. And it is a kingdom that, by the way, because he's the Son of Man, is fulfilling what your call and my call were from the very beginning. God's plan is on track. Daniel, you're watching the beast rise up. Everything seems to be chaos. It seems like Genesis 1 is unraveling. I want you to know, no, God is going to open the books. One like the Son of Man is going to come. In the time of the fourth kingdom, make no mistake, he will come. He will ride up on the clouds to the Father, and he will be given all authority, all power, all dominion, plan on track. That is the kingdom of God. You can preach this stuff. So, I want you to see, and this is important to understand, this, friends, is a picture of Jesus in his resurrection, ascension, exaltation, and what theologians call the session. He is doing this right now. Daniel had to wait to see this picture fulfilled. You and I are living in the reality of it right now. Now, now, why do I say that? Number one, because this happened in the time of the fourth kingdom. What's the fourth kingdom? Rome. It's not a future Rome that's going to arise. There's nothing in the text about that. It's about Rome. Which, by the way, have you ever noticed in the New Testament that they're all expecting the kingdom to come? They all think the Messiah is coming. Why is that? Because they're in the days of the fourth kingdom. If you've read Daniel, you know when Rome arose, God saying this is going to happen. That's why they're waiting for the consolation of Israel to arise. But secondly, this is exactly what Jesus did. In Mark 1.15, I'm going to go through some New Testament verses. I want to help you so that when you're reading the New Testament, we think through this the way the writers did. You can read this in all the Gospels, but this is the beginning of Jesus' public proclamation. Notice what he says. The time has come. What what time? Daniel 7 time. You've been waiting for the kingdom. The time has come. And notice, the kingdom of God is near or at hand. Repent and believe the good news. This isn't just some random time. He's saying the long-awaited time of the kingdom. You saw the terrible statue, and then you heard the rock was going to be cut out without human hands, and it was going to smash the statue and establish the kingdom of God, which will grow forever and ever and ever. The time has come. You heard there were going to be four beasts. We're in the time of the fourth beast. I am telling you, one like the Son of Man has come. The kingdom is near. And actually the word near, I was looking at that in the, in the Greek this week, the word near is what's known as a perfect tense. So Simeon and David, yeah, you, these guys are taking Greek. 
Perfect tense is the one where you say something is already completed. It's an action I did in the past, but the effects of it are going on. So when he's saying the kingdom is near, it's not, you know, a couple thousand years from now I'm going to return and set up the kingdom. No, the kingdom is here. God has already decreed and established. The books have already been opened. I'm here proclaiming to you the kingdom is at hand. What you've been waiting for, for over 550 years since you were told, now's the time. It has arrived. This is why Jesus preached so much on the kingdom. Next thing to ask ourselves relative to Daniel 7, what was Jesus' favorite name for himself? The Son of Man. Interestingly enough, at the fair the other day, I had a guy who was not even a Christian. I hope he's watching right now. He came up, and I went through the gospel presentation, and we talked about it, and he said, I I got a question I've always wondered about. Why did Jesus call himself the Son of Man? It's like, man alive, dude, this is like hitting a t-ball. I said, oddly enough, this is my sermon on Sunday. And Mark is over digging out and finds out he has a Bible leaf on the Son of Man to come and give to the guy. Okay, so I mean, it was a complete setup. But notice... Jesus actually did this 82 times in the gospel. It's his favorite title. Now, some of that is because, you know, Messiah, the term had been messed up. But why does Jesus pick son of man? Because he's saying Daniel 7 is happening right now. The son of man has come. We're in the time of the fourth king. The beasts have here. They've done what they're going to do. The Son of Man has arrived to fulfill the plan of God. And we can see one of the times where Jesus did it, and he related to judgment, in Mark chapter 14, verses 61 and 62. We're at the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry. The high priest is upset because Jesus is not answering. He says, so Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One. And notice what Jesus says, I am, and you will see who? The Son of Man doing what? Sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds. What is Jesus telling him? Daniel 7, 13 and 14, it's me. I'm the one, and you're going to watch it happen right in front of your eyes. Not Thousands of years later, by the way, you, the guy I'm talking to, are going to see this happen. Think about, we we quote the Great Commission, right? Go and make disciples of all nations. But what's the beginning of the Great Commission? Matthew 28, verse 18. Look what Matthew 28, 18 says. Jesus came to them and said, I've got a good deal of authority. Is that... Oh, that's our modern version, when life's not going the way we like. How much authority? All authority. Okay, let me break out what the Greek word for all means. It means all. All. You you have to take years of Greek to understand that. Okay? Not, Jesus isn't saying, I'm going to get authority in the future. He's telling them then, and don't miss this, what's Jesus just about to do? Ascend to the Father. He's going to ride on the clouds and go into the presence of who? The Ancient of Days and say, it's done. I've done it all. I've accomplished your will. And so Jesus says, everything you and I do as the church is in light of the fact that the Son of Man has come. 
The Son of Man has conquered. The Son of Man has fulfilled the will of God. The Son of Man has conquered death. He's been raised from the dead. He has ascended to the Father, and He is sitting with all authority. We don't have to get authority for Him. We just announce that it's already happened. In spite of whatever gone on with whatever other election or anything else, here's who rules and reigns. Jesus Christ. Think about what this means actually when we look in the book of Acts. In Acts 1.9, I'm going to use the ESV because the NIV is a little loose in its uh, translation here. The ESV translates it exactly. This is at the end of Matthew 28, same time. Luke records, you know, this is, you're going to be given power when the Holy Spirit comes in. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to take the gospel out. Here's the very next verse. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him. It's literally a cloud received him. So the, the NIV is a little bit loose. What, why does Luke tell us that a cloud took him? Is this, does this mean, again, the cloud was stiff and Jesus could stand on top of it? What's the point? He's ascending. Where is he going to? The Father's right hand. Luke is telling us, Daniel 7, 13 and 14, this has already happened. Jesus has ascended. Jesus, and notice in Daniel 7, 13, by the way, it doesn't say Jesus is coming with the clouds of heaven from God to us. Where is he going? He's going up to God riding the clouds. This is exactly what Acts 1 is telling us. You move through in the book of Acts, Stephen is being martyred and the gospel is about to go out to the nations. And as Stephen is being martyred, what does he see in, in Acts chapter 7 verse 56? Look, he said, I see heaven open and who? The Son of Man, seated at the right hand of God. Do you see why they went crazy and stoned him? This isn't just a claim, hey, I got a little bit different idea. I'm telling you Daniel 7 has happened, and it's Jesus. Jesus did it, and I'm looking at him. He has ridden the cloud into the presence of God. He is seated at the right hand, and he's accomplishing the will of God right now. All of this is back to Daniel chapter 7. In fact, one last verse, and we'll move on. Uh, Jesus, we're told in the New Testament, the Son of Man is presently subduing all of God's enemies. The Apostle Paul in the chapter on resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, in the middle of it, he writes this, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign. So notice, there's still enemies, but he's reigning. He must reign until he has put all enemies where? Under his feet. Anybody remember that phrase? Psalm 8. And Paul to let us know, he's not just alluding to it, he's quoting it, says the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Paul is telling us, do you understand? He's the son of man. He's accomplishing everything in Daniel 7. He is accomplishing everything in Psalm 8, and it is all being done right now. So what this means, friends, Please let this sink into your heart and mind. Next week, we're going to see the tough times that come, okay? That does not mean you and I don't suffer, but we need to remember Jesus, the Son of Man, is now ruling and reigning, bringing everything into subjection, and He will one day return and consummate everything. Amen. That's what's going on right now. You serve the one who has all authority and power. 
So how do we apply this? And then we're going to come to the Lord's table. In fact, if I can get one or two guys to help me move the communion table over. Two simple questions. Number one, do I see the nature of rebellious human kingdoms? Now, make no mistake, these four kingdoms are past. Okay? None of them is still in existence. None of them are going to come back into existence or any of that. They're past, not future. They don't describe a a kingdom that is future for us. They describe a future that was kingdom for Daniel, but past for us. But the principle is the same for all human kingdoms. They all tend to rebel and act in a terrifying, beastly manner. This is just like Psalm 2. For those of us who were around when we were meditating on Psalm 2 for weeks, the, the kings of the earth plot and conspire and try to figure out how to throw off Yahweh and his anointed one. That has been going on throughout this entire age. And that's why we've got to remember that our true citizenship and loyalty lie with the kingdom of God, not whatever earthly kingdom is on the scene at the moment. Our ultimate loyalty is always with God and his kingdom. Now, let me say, like Daniel, we serve as citizens in these kingdoms. Daniel has to look at that and say, wow, that lion with the wings and all that, that's where I'm working, and I'm going to be with the bear next. That's the reality, okay? We serve in those kingdoms. We pray for them. We work for them, but we always remember my ultimate loyalty and hope is reserved for the kingdom of God alone. Because we always remember, eventually, bears start acting like bears. And bears are terrifying. That's what they do. It is their nature. So we'll discuss it even more next week, but don't be surprised by opposition and persecution in this age. There are far too many Christians in America right now who are acting all shocked. <gasps> Our beastly kingdom is acting like a beastly kingdom. Well, there's a news flash. We're doing what kingdoms do. Second question, and we come to the Lord's table. Do I see that Christ is ruling all things now and bringing everything into subjection to God? Again, we want to read Daniel 7, 13, and 14 and say, won't it be great when Jesus does that? Yes, it was great. When, when he did do that, it was awesome. And we're living in the wake of that right now. Jesus has already been raised, is already ascended, has already received all power and authority, and is reigning and bringing everything in subjection to God's will now. Now next week we're going to see right in the middle of all this, the fourth little beast is running his mouth. Okay? Are there people out there running their mouths? Shaking their fists? Declaring that their kingdom is eternal and ours is imaginary? Yes. They are. And they will. But we remember that Jesus is actually ruling. They're using his air to speak blasphemy against him. They are using the authority he has granted to them for a time to even work against him and his purpose. So what this means for you and me, Christian, take heart. Our God reigns. All times, 
all places. Keep your eyes set. The kingdom of God is growing and advancing. It is growing and it will never stop growing. I grieve over what's happening in Afghanistan, but I know this, Afghanistan will rise, Afghanistan will fall, the kingdom of God will last forever. Long after the Taliban is just a footnote in history, Jesus will rule and reign. And if he tarries long enough, America will be a footnote in history, but Jesus will rule and reign. Other religions are going to come and go. The kingdom of God will last forever. Not because I want to practice positive mental attitude, but because Jesus is on the throne now. And he promises this is the way it is. So I can live in light of that. So you and I should be people of hope. No matter what happens in your day or in your week, Jesus is ruling, Jesus is reigning, he is working all things for his will, and even if somebody is persecuting you or crushing you and everything seems to be lost, God says, I am working that for your good. And it's not going to be temporary, it's going to be an eternal weight of glory. That's what's going to happen in you and me. The most they can do is put us into his presence. That's the worst they can do. And everything else is down from there. So if people are making fun of you this week, if they say you're crazy for living this, you're a bigot for this or that or all this other kind of stuff, just smile. Say what you want. My king's on the throne. And it's not up for a recall vote. That's the way it is. He rules and he reigns. Be people of hope and live that way. That means I shouldn't have a scowl all the time. Have a smile. We win. With that, we're going to come to the Lord's table. We're invited to the table of the king of the universe. He invites his people. You remember that awesome picture in the throne room? Friend, you wouldn't just stroll into that. Nor would I. But we can We're invited not only to come in, he says, come in, have a seat, and let me feed you. That is privilege, unimaginable privilege. Now, I want to, I'm going to read as an introduction from the book of Revelation. Here, this description, later on we're going to see that Daniel's told he has to seal all this up. Seal it up. People aren't going to understand this. Thankfully, in Revelation, we read, John's weeping because nobody can open the seal. But, beginning in verse 6, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, and he's standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures. By the way, the four beastly creatures, as always, Satan has his mocking counterfeit. There are four living creatures around the throne, the four gospel symbols that we talk about. 
So encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bulls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering Thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. All this sounds familiar, right? 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Who would like to join them? John is giving a vision and saying it's happened. And then the amazing thing is the lamb turns around to you and I, who have failed, who brought about his death by our own disobedience. And he says, come. Come, sit at the table, receive and eat all of you for eternity. So I invite you today, if you're not a believer in our Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you with everything in me, embrace him with faith. Because he is seated on the throne. And one day we're all going to stand in front of him. And friend, you will not stand before his judgment seat. And nor will I. But if we are covered by him, then we are free. And I don't face the judgment seat with fear. I face it with rejoicing because I know he's going to reward me for what things I were able to do by his grace for his glory. Because he has already borne the wrath for me. So if you believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who alone can save from sin, the Son of Man who alone is worthy of worship and total obedience, I invite you to his table. For what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from it, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Go ahead and prepare uh, to take the bread. Hallelujah. 
Father, you are the ancient of days, seated on the throne, full of power and glory. You are surrounded by myriads of angels who worship you and do your will. And though we have sinned, not doing your will, we come before you now in full confidence because Jesus bore our sin in his body on the tree. Through his redemptive work, we have been forgiven and cleansed, and by his wounds, we are healed. Lord God, we give you thanks for the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Jesus, you are the glorious Son of Man. You took our flesh and blood and perfectly obeyed in our place, fulfilling the word and the will of God. Your blood was shed, not for your sin, but for ours. And by your blood, you have purchased us from every tribe and nation to be the people of God. You are rightly worshipped, for you are the God-man, and you have all authority, glory, and sovereign power. So as we take this cup, we, your people, give you praise and honor and glory and power, and we give you thanks for your blood, which has purified us from all sin and secured our place as your people forever. Take and drink. Let's stand together so we conclude to ask the Lord to fasten this to our hearts that we might live in light of this in the coming days and weeks. Holy Spirit, thank you for transferring us from the beastly kingdom of darkness and bringing us into the glorious kingdom of God. We thank you for sealing us for the day of redemption when our bodies will be raised to eat and drink in the eternal feast. We come now, O Spirit of God, and we ask, empower us to live faithfully in the midst of this evil age. Enable us to ignore the roaring of the beasts of this age and to hear the voice of our God and King. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts so that we might see Jesus high and lifted up, reigning on his throne of glory. And may that vision quell our fears and stir up faith so that we might give testimony of the true kingdom in this world of fading dreams. Lord God, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, the all-glorious Son of God and Son of Man. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. I'm going to bless us with the benediction out of, it's a doxology and a benediction out of Revelation chapter 5. Remind you that John said he heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. To him, 
who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And they fell down and they worshiped. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.